Finding the Path A Dharma Talk by Venerable Ajahn Anun We're all interested in bringing about that which is good and beneficial. This is what is meant by merit. This merit, or punya, is that which lifts up the heart, that which fills the heart with goodness. The opposite of merit is wrongdoing, or papa, which is synonymous with heat. It's nearly Maga Puja, the day the Buddha delivered the Avadipadimoka sermon and said, Sapapapasa akaranang, refraining from all wrongdoing, Kusala supasambada, bringing goodness to perfection, Sachita pario dapanang, making the mind pure and unblemished, Etang buddhana sasanang. These three principles are the teachings of all Buddhas. The great number of Buddhas who have already come and gone all expounded the Avadapadimoka, just as our Buddha did. And the next Buddha to arise in the world will proclaim the same teaching as well. It won't be any different. In essence, the teachings of the Buddha can be summarized as abandoning the unwholesome, cultivating the wholesome, and purifying the mind. This is the heart of Buddhism. Or one could look at these three directives as being like the three main arteries which run through our hearts. When we come to practice, we must dispel that which is damaging from our hearts as much as we can. We both abandon wrongdoing and incline towards goodness as well. Sometimes it's the case that people will perform wholesome deeds, but haven't given up other deeds which are unwholesome. Although they do things which are good, the bad hasn't been given up yet. In the beginning, just focus on two things, speech and actions. Start by gradually reducing unskillful ways of speaking and acting, then move on to making your words and deeds beneficial. As for making the mind pure, this is accomplished through developing wisdom, investigating and then letting go of matters of body and mind. This is what's meant by making the mind pure. When we incline towards goodness through building parami, doing charitable deeds and so on, this is merit. As for wrongdoing, today we've come here to do good acts and so aren't committing any wrongdoing through speech or action. This is sila, moral discipline. And we could say that the sila is what protects and nurtures all other wholesome qualities. Even though as lay practitioners we may have lots of duties, if we're resolute in our practice, we won't be heedless. Anything that's wrong, we give it up. We start by abstaining from killing, abstaining from stealing, abstaining from sexual misconduct, from lying, from intoxicants. And look, we've all made mistakes in the past, but from now on, we're going to keep these five precepts. If we habitually maintain the five precepts, then when we fix our mindfulness on the in-and-out breath or on the word buddho, a meditation practice will bring us peace. It's important that we understand what's meant by meditation practice. The Buddha taught for us to develop our kamatana, and kama means work, and tana is a basis. So in other words, we need to work on a firm basis for our hearts. Because the nature of the heart is that it's constantly in motion. When the heart is moving here and there, following thoughts and moods, there's no stillness. And without stillness, we can't see the truth. 
So, therefore, we have to train the heart to be still. Sometimes we're able to concentrate the mind, and sometimes not. Sometimes we feel agitated and confused. Please try to endure, though, for this is part of our discipline. Kanti paramang tapo titika. Patient endurance is the supreme incinerator of defilement. So we ground ourselves in this next principle of the Avadapadimoka discourse as well. Relying on patience and endurance to burn up the mental defilements or the helaces. When we're established in moral discipline, even if we're criticized or insulted, we don't retaliate or respond in kind. It's not because we lack wit or intelligence. We have plenty of the sort of intelligence which goes in the way of defilement, but we don't respond because we give importance to our sila. This moral discipline is what will look after us. Right here, we're already close to Nibbana, close to seeing the Dharma in any moment, because we're walking the noble path. We're in line with right speech, right action, and right livelihood. That's to say we're established in morality. When our morality is firm, then we have right view. We incline towards acting in ways that are wholesome and meritorious, which is right intention. We have the intention to refrain from cruelty or ill will, whether through body, speech, or mind. We incline towards goodness and that which is beneficial for ourselves and others. At this point, our heart is on the path. When we have the wisdom necessary to see the harm of being without moral discipline and the benefit of being with moral discipline, then we make the effort to keep on practicing. It's not enough to stop at this point. Even if it's difficult, we need to add to the meritorious karma that we've already made. Cultivating the four Brahma-viharas, or sublime abidings, is an important meditation practice. So there's metta, or goodwill for others. Karuna, thoughts of wanting to help those who are suffering. Mudita, feeling gladness and appreciation for the goodness in other people. And Upeka, equanimity in situations where we're not able to help. These four Brahma-viharas will care for a heart, protecting it from sadness and depression. This is a meditation theme which can help to make our practice of concentration strong and stable. So really work at concentrating the mind. You can try to make it one with the single word, buddho. For when the mind is truly with buddho, it's utterly still and peaceful. There's no longer any fear in the heart. One can go and stay in frightening places like cremation grounds, and upon recollecting buddho, the heart will become brave and courageous. Piles of bones scattered about, they're nothing special. We've got bones as well. The only difference is that ours can still speak and eat and walk around. This body hasn't died yet. It hasn't been overcome by disease yet. This body is still hanging in there. But one day, it will have to break down, which means we're all in exactly the same boat. When we contemplate the impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self of the body, we'll see that there's nothing to it. Everyone who is born must die. Since the Buddha has clearly shown the way, what's left is for us to practice. And our practice must be grounded in the principles of morality, concentration or samadhi, and wisdom. There are no other principles, 
no other path which can lead us to see the Dhamma. It's only through cultivating the Noble Eightfold Path, the Buddha said, that realizing one of the four stages of enlightenment is possible. Just as there are no tracks in the sky, there are no enlightened beings outside of the Noble Eightfold Path. The path of morality, concentration and wisdom is something important. One can't just do things any old way. Solely watching the mind, for example. If this practice isn't joined with a basis of concentration, wisdom won't come about. There's just not enough strength of mind. Perhaps one is able to observe the mind as it proliferates. One can see the arising, enduring and ceasing. But there's not enough strength and stillness of mind to eliminate the mental defilements. We need to bring the mind to a state of calm so as to gather the energy to investigate. This is the proper method. Say we're practicing meditation in a peaceful place and watching leaves fall off the trees. If our mind is still, as we watch the leaves falling to the ground, it can appear to us as like the lives of human beings falling away, leading us back to the truth of the body and bringing about genuine insight. The mind may then unify in concentration, giving rise to Tatanga Vimuti, a temporary liberation of the mind through wisdom. And if the power of our mind reaches a greater level still, it's even possible to attain to perfect clarity of insight right at that moment. In India, at the time of the Buddha, there were two dominant beliefs. One, that after death one was annihilated, and two, that whatever level one had been born at in this life, one would forever continue to be born at that level of existence. But that's not how it works. The heart takes rebirth according to our karma, repeatedly cycling through sangsara in various forms of existence. And because our various births are dictated by our karma, if we create bad karma, the heart will accordingly take birth in a lower form of existence, where one finds only suffering and torment. Therefore the heart is the most important thing. All forms of karma are performed in our actions, in our speech, and in our thoughts. When we create virtuous karma, we'll be happy. This is because our heart is not harming itself or others. It's abiding in goodness. And at the time of death, a heart that's pure and established in goodness will go to heaven, the Buddha said. A heart that's afflicted, on the other hand, will go to hell. This is dependent on the state of the heart at the moment the body dies. The fact that a Buddha can arise in the world, that one can realize enlightenment, cannot have come about just by being born in this lifetime only. The Buddha wasn't just suddenly able to attain to enlightenment as the foremost in the world, greater than all other humans, heavenly beings and gods within the three-world system. That's not how it happened. In order to become the fully enlightened Buddha, he had to perfect the ten perfections over countless lifetimes, much more than other human beings. This was so that in his final birth, he could reach enlightenment with a heart more supreme than any other in any realm. It's not the case that he was able to become the Buddha without ever having developed himself previously. That's not how it was. Yet, whether people believe in rebirth or not, if they consistently make bad karma through body, speech, and mind, they'll meet with suffering right here in the present because their hearts are afflicted. Others may not see their pain, 
but they themselves will know. And if there is rebirth, these people will meet with even greater pain and suffering. On the other hand, those who believe that one is not annihilated at the time of death, that we will be reborn according to our karma, these people will try to live their lives skillfully in the present, doing good, abandoning evil, making the mind bright. If there is life after death, then people who conduct themselves in this way will meet with comfort. And even if there isn't, they will still experience happiness in the present. With regard to our beliefs, some things we can't prove. At times we must rely on faith instead. There is faith in the great teacher who was enlightened over 2,500 years ago, along with the ability to recollect his previous births and the ability to know the future. The teachings of the Buddha are flawless. Heavens, hells, Brahma realms, and Nibbana definitely exist. These are facts which the Buddha proclaimed on the basis of his knowledges of previous births and the disappearing and reappearing of beings according to their karma. He saw absolutely clearly that death is followed by rebirth, as opposed to annihilation. These days, however, people educate themselves to a high degree based on scientific principles. They seek to understand cause and effect within the present moment. In order to believe in something, they must be able to prove it. If that's the case, then they can look to the present for proof. When one acts in good ways, creating skillful karma, then there is happiness. When we don't harm others, it's good, isn't it? When everyone is established in morality, then there is harmony and happiness. We have thoughts free from cruelty and animosity, developing goodwill for one another. The result is happiness and ease. Our hearts are joyful. But if someone nurtures vengefulness and ill will, what effect is that going to have? There'll only be gloominess and depression. Either way, look to the present. Heaven, hells, Brahma realms, or Nibbana, we can look for these right now in our own heart. There's nowhere else we need to look. When Ajahn Chah went to practice under Lumpur Ginnery, he once came upon a large number of red and black ants battling one another. Ajahn Chah sat there watching, cheering on the opposite sides. Sometimes he cheered for the red ants, and sometimes for the black ants. Lumpur Ginnery walked up and said, Whoop, up to heaven. Oh, down to hell. And then he walked away. He taught like a Zen master, in a way that made one think. So Ajahn Chah considered, Eh, how could one go between heaven and hell that easily? He had a lot of mental tranquility already, so when he reflected on this, it became crystal clear. Ah, it lies within the heart, this very heart right here. Happiness and suffering equal heaven and hell right here in the present. If one isn't yet grounded in morality, then the heart is at the level of a lower being. But later on, having adopted moral standards, the heart rises to the level of a true human being. But if the heart is without morality, then it can drop down. Now that we've met with the Buddha's teachings, we should work to lead the heart to a higher birth. If we have to take rebirth, let it at least be an improved birth. And it's right here, in the present moment, that this work is done. We've all taken birth into this world, 
So we develop the understanding that this body is us, and the things we can acquire are ours. The house, the car, it all belongs to us. But when these things are lost, stolen, or simply wear out, then suffering appears in our heart. This is because we've attached to these things as ours. This is the cause. This doesn't mean that we are negligent with our possessions. We still have to look after them so that they can be used for a long time. But we make use of them with mindfulness and wisdom, reminding ourselves, these things are impermanent, all right? They don't really belong to me. Ajahn Chah was constantly reminding the monks and lay people to keep their mindfulness on guard. Can you see? All the material things in our possession must be consistently reflected upon. One day the glass will break, all right? The car has to break down, okay? This is called using our things with wisdom. This is different from making use of things blindly. We like new things. We think that anything new must be better. This is the way that ignorance, craving, and attachment fool us. But look, even if we acquire something new, it goes and gets old just the same. We're always seeking things outside of us because it's not difficult to do. But why don't we make time for seeking our heart? Why don't we work to renew our hearts? One more year passes by, and our body undergoes one more year of degeneration. But do we see this happening? Or do we only see the things that we have acquired? Sometimes we have to look at what's being lost as well. One more year of our time in this world is gone. Our time remaining has decreased. In regard to this, the Buddha had us frequently reflect. The days and nights are passing by, passing by. How well am I spending my time? Our lives are not far from death. We must bring up this recollection of death sometimes, such as asking ourselves what we want from this life. What would be a real substance? We may want wealth, status, praise and pleasure, but one day these things will leave us. We can seek them, but they can't last forever. This body of ours, which we're so fond of, our parents look after it until we're grown, They give it food and water, getting medicine for it when it's sick, and finding it a place to stay. But this body doesn't follow our wishes. It simply goes its own way according to causes and conditions. In the end, it has to fall apart, because that's how bodies are. As practitioners, we must be interested in following the ways of Dharma and cultivating our minds. Because what our minds need is calm and stillness. We tell the mind to be at peace. So why isn't it peaceful? We don't want any thoughts of hostility and bitterness towards others. Stop right now, we tell it. But it doesn't stop. If delusion, craving and attachment are weakened though, then the mind can be made to stop. For this reason, we must train our mind. A mind that's well trained brings happiness, the Buddha said. When one first starts out, There may be various doubts about the practice of Dhamma. Is it really effective? What's jhana, or mental absorption, like? What's magapala, or the path and the fruits of attainment, like? What's the quickest way to get results? There may be lots of uncertainty. So one goes searching for answers and things outside of oneself. One goes looking around for a path of practice. One looks around for a teacher. 
But later on, when we've found conviction in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, our commitment to the practice will come from within. When I was looking for a teacher, I ended up ordaining at Wonombapong to live with Ajahn Chah. And he didn't teach us all that much. He just taught us to be mindful. He told us to keep the mind from becoming pleased or displeased throughout the day. And this is important. The mind is stirred up when it meets with moods, becoming pleased or displeased. So we need steady mindfulness to keep up with these reactions of the mind. When we've started practicing meditation, combined with the foundation of moral integrity, this will help bring greater peace to our mind. If you have a lot of work and duties, then cultivate mindfulness in the midst of that work. And to whatever extent possible, make time for chanting and meditation each day to help calm the mind. When we put more time into the practice, making it continuous, something we do every day, our meditation will improve. After practicing like this for some time, one day the mind will become sufficiently still. When the mind has reached a suitable degree of calm, this is when our contemplation can produce the insight that the body is transient, is stressful, and is not self. The teachings of the Buddha will then become clear. And even if we don't realize the Dharma in this life, the fruits of our effort will still carry on into our next life. As for those that are able to get results in this life, that's a reflection of their past practice and accumulated merit. But you don't need to wonder about how much merit you've already accumulated. If you believe in the Buddha's teachings, either by faith or by insight, just keep on practicing. Wherever you go, try to keep the word Buddha with you at all times to supervise the heart. This is important, for when the heart merges with Buddha, or Dhammu, or Sangha, we become the true Buddha, the one who knows, the one who is awake, the one who is joyful. And we're capable of understanding the Buddha's teachings without difficulty. Whether we reach Nibbana in this life or not, we just keep building up our spiritual perfections until we come to see the Dharma with total clarity. So please train yourselves well in ways of body, speech, and mind. Wherever you go, don't forget Buddha or the practice of contemplation, for these are our means to bring peace to the heart. Keep investigating until you can see that all compounded phenomena, both material and mental, are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. Right here is where the path which leads beyond suffering is to be found. This path, the Arya Marga, is the most important vehicle. Arya means that which is supreme, and Marga means path. So it's the supreme path, the supreme vehicle, greater than any other vehicle in the world. No matter what vehicle we might find to take us out of this physical world, we still wouldn't escape from the endless cycle of birth and death and sangsara. Thus we need to rely on the vehicle of the noble path, for this is the most important vehicle there is. May you all progress in the Dhamma.